getting by is this as good as it gets. And it's kind of resonating with some people right now. I've actually been talking to some people throughout the week who have been uh, just kind of saying, I, I, I've liked the social media post because it's kind of asking a question I'm wrestling with. And to be honest, this whole series came out of a question that I'm wrestling with, is how does it get better? Am I just getting by and just trying to survive life with kids right now and survive the different demands of the season? Is this as good as it gets? And, and I know there, the, the deeper answer is no, there's more, there's hope. But what does that look like? So how do we create a space for authenticity? How do we actually bring ourselves to be authentic within a community? And have you ever experienced the feeling of just feeling out of place? You, uh, you're somewhere where maybe you're the minority or you just, you know that you don't fit in. Um, I've had several of those experiences and the easiest thing to do is kind of just like shrug, slide down your seat, don't make, don't make a big deal of anything to draw attention to you. And in my experience, at least, most of this has happened in churches. Whenever I go into churches, a lot of the, the slogans were, for a while were, come as you are. And that's true. But then I know this one of my friends, he would come to church wearing a tie. And they would say, you don't have to wear a tie. You can come as you are. And he's like, but I am coming as I am. I'm wearing a tie. In other churches, you wear jeans and you walk in and they say, of course, come as you are. But then you get there and everyone else is in suits and you're kind of thinking, oh man, I, I like the invite and the heart behind it, but I don't really feel like I can actually come as I am. Uh, one time I actually picked up my mom too and I had my Starbucks coffee and, and she was like, you better drink that fast because you can't bring it into the sanctuary. And she had just been going on about a whole outreach program for the community that they were trying to get behind. And I'm like, you want an outreach program? Let them bring coffee into your sanctuary. But this picture here is a good representation of my face going into church. <laughs> this is the mask I wear. I actually put this on a, a previous coworker's uh, screen while she was away on vacation and deleted all of her icons off her desktop. But... Uh, the, the, that, that sums up pretty good that I put on the cheerful, like, yeah, glad to be here. Life's going great. Everything's good. And no one's any wiser to what I'm actually going through. But Walter Brueggemann, an Old Testament scholar, a theologian, he says that churches should be the most honest place in town, not the happiest place in town. Whoa. I, I mentioned last week that people don't just want to know what's true. They want to know what's real. We, we have truth, and, and we understand some things while we don't understand all of it. But people want to know what's real. How does this truth that we say we know make a difference today, here, now? And if you hear the other music in the speakers that's just uh, a radio station we pick up sometimes. <laughs> but let's be honest, how many times have we been to a church service, and I, you don't have to raise your hand, but you've been so bored. You've just been sitting there like, oh my goodness. It just doesn't resonate with where we're at. It, it focuses on someday and another place, 
life is going to be so much better. But what about today? What difference does it make now? What hope does our faith and our belief offer us now? And it's okay if I'm the culprit behind some of your boredom. I know, I think I admitted that there was one sermon that I left here thinking, so what? <laughs> that happens. But it shocks me that we talk about God as being the most powerful, most uh, amazing, most loving God we could ever imagine. But yet, when we enter into this incredible story, in the pages of Scripture, we sit here listening to messages at church, and we're being put to sleep. There's this disconnect between what we say is this most incredible love story ever, and then kind of these messages where it's like... That actually just reminded me of this one sweet lady, Betty, at my last church. That every time you'd get up to finally preach she would be sawn logs. <laughs> but for the music, she was there. But why the disconnect? And the reason that I'm really picking on our faith right now is because I believe the first step that's going to move us toward creating this space of authenticity is being authentic to ourselves and actually listening to our heart. So I have an exercise I want to try with you tonight. So if you have a connection card, you can grab it and... and uh, or if you want to just do it in your mind, you can do this. But in the note section or anywhere you want, write down how you're feeling. Right now, just write down how are you feeling. <laughs> and I'm not going to ask you to hand these in or share what you wrote. So you can be as honest as you want. No one else is going to see them. But what I am going to ask you is how many of you wrote down more than one emotion? You wrote down two? Oh, yeah? <laughs> All right, and with that, are, are any of those emotions opposing? Because, see, that's exactly where I'm wanting to focus is that it's so easy sometimes to focus on the black and the white. But really, our emotions aren't so black and white. Our emotions, can we can have so many different emotions. Sometimes we focus on we have to be sad or happy. We have to be afraid or angry. We have to be frustrated or content. It's these, we, but what if we're both? What if we can be sad and happy? What if we can be afraid, scared out of our mind, but also excited? And it's when we reflect on all of our feelings and the intricacies of what's going on in our life, the grief of a child running away from home, the joy of a new grandbaby, the exhaustion of sleepless nights taking care of a sick child, the loss of a loved one, the excitement of hearing the coffee pot beep, letting you know the fresh pot's ready. I believe then we can actually respond to the question of, what emotion am I feeling? Yes, all of them. I recently had a conversation with a friend which left me sad. And, and usually when I'm feeling sad, I express it in more frustration and anger. And yesterday, after the dump of snow, I went outside and with the kids and we w made this epic snow fort and 
I had so much fun and my heart was full and I was happy. And then all the while on this unknown journey of church planting and, and all the ups and downs, there's this fear that if I focus on it too much, I'm just like, ah, what's next? But then at the same time, as I look at how God's been faithful through it all, I'm excited and I'm in awe that I get to be part of something that's so much bigger than any one of us. There's a non-duality. There's this non-dual nature to our heart that our moods aren't permanent and they're often blended and mingled with their opposites. There's even some pains and there's some wounds that become a normal part of life that just don't go away. Does that mean that we're always going to be in this dark place? If you've lost a loved one, it, are you always going to be, be sad and in this state of grieving? Or can you actually still long and miss that person you've lost but experience joy and happiness? Absolutely. At the end of the day, we're not black and white. We're colorful. We're dynamic. We're filled with so many emotions, and we have so many layers and depths to us and to who we are. But this raises the question that if we're so colorful and dynamic, and there's so much to us, why are our churches, our religions, our faith, our beliefs so black and white? Why have we boiled it all down to rightness rather than learning to journey together and making space for the dynamics of humanity? It's as if we believe that Jesus in the Sermon of the Ma on the Mount says, blessed are those who are right. That's kind of the environment that I, I grew up in. It was about uh, approaching scriptures to be right, to prove your way of thinking rather than blessed are people who are hopeless because the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are people who grieve because they will be made glad. Blessed are people who show mercy because they will receive mercy. But you see, there's often this narrative that holds groups, institutions, churches, communities together. There's this glue that binds us. But what if suddenly we begin to question that narrative? We begin to start poking holes at that glue, glue that's holding us together. And we start raising doubts that we're wrestling. We start asking questions. Well, in most cases, you're kicked to the curb. In most cases, we don't have an environment that's always safe to be able to explore those questions, those doubts. But here's the beautiful thing about Jesus. In Luke's gospel, whenever someone has been kicked to the edges, Jesus embraces and includes the Samaritans, in. Women, in. Lepers, in. One of the major arcs of the Gospel of Luke is inclusion. That's why last weekend we even started with our first value of acceptance. Whoever the system has pushed to the edges, the Gospel says, no, 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 no. They're part of it. That's why the religious leaders are looking at Jesus having meal after meal in these celebrations, and they're getting so upset because he's making this political statement of who's actually in and who's out. But here comes the trickier, messy part of it. Because those of us who've spent time in a community held together by this narrative, a specific belief set, 
we want to respond with that, but we do know the answers. We, we do have truth, and we do need to sign off on what we believe before we can belong. But right there is when we start with that premise is when we drive out authenticity. When we drive home these hard lines, we're letting people know that it's not a safe place to actually explore, to actually investigate who Jesus is, to investigate the different dynamics of faith. Because they know that to raise a question or to raise some doubt would be disruptive to the system. But Jesus shows us a better way. In fact, I'll even be honest in saying that when I became part of this larger church family, the denomination, um, the Christian and Missionary Alliance in Canada, I had to sign a statement of faith which outlines what I believe, which is good. I'm, I'm going to be a pastor. I'm representing this church family. And they wanted to know that I'm not going to be up here preaching the gospel of Kevin and trying to convert you to Kevinism and drink my Kool-Aid. I get it. It makes sense. But there were two statements on the statement of faith that I wrestled with. And not at the, the, the big picture view. I was able to kind of see everything and say, yeah, I, I agree with that. I support that. But in some of the fine details, just the way things were worded or articulated, there were just a couple things that I said, you know what, I'd like to sign this statement of faith with reservations. And when I first asked the question, the person thought I was joking. They're like, why would you want to sign it with reservations? You either believe it or you don't believe it. But I explained that although I could sign off on this big, big picture level, there were still things that I was working through that I wasn't quite sure that I could wholeheartedly sign off. And, and I said, I'd be willing that if I ever had to preach on these specific topics that I'd be able to present both of them and, and just admit that I'm not sure where I land. And I was scared as heck saying this stuff because I'm thinking they could just say, okay, well, it's been nice uh, going through this process with you, but we're going to go with someone else. But I wanted to make space for questioning. I needed to be honest with myself, and I needed to be honest with the denomination who was bringing me on so that we could work together, so that we could learn and grow together. And this is what I desire for our gathering here at the well, too. I want it to be a place where we can truly investigate Jesus, his claims, his miracles, the, the stories throughout scripture, the blood and sweat that's actually contained within these pages. Brené Brown, an author and research professor who studies vulnerability, courage, authenticity, shame, she writes, authenticity is the daily practice of letting go of who we think we're supposed to be and embracing who we are. Well, the fundamental gospel, also known as the good news, is the announcement that you are loved. So the question we need to wrestle with is how do we live out our authenticity as human beings, make space for it in our community? I believe this takes wisdom. So what better book to look at than Proverbs, which is categorized as wisdom literature? So you might be surprised to know that in our scriptures, heaven is not the primary concern to which earth is a tag-along uh, tag afterthought. On earth as it is in heaven is Jesus' prayer. 
wisdom is the biblical term for this on earth as it is in heaven everyday living. Wisdom is the art of living skillfully in whatever actual conditions we find ourselves. It's not just about getting out of this place into some place better, but it's about bringing heaven to earth. This blending. Jesus has inaugurated the kingdom now. So Proverbs 4.23 says, Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. In the wisdom tradition, the heart is the center of your being. It's the control center. Everything you do flows from it. So it was considered the essence of a person's being. So it makes sense on one hand to guard it if it's that important. But just like anything that's valuable, you, you guard it, you protect it, and you, you kind of secure it. Like it, it, my immediate reaction is to think of almost hardening my heart, not in a sense that I become emotionless, but just kind of have that protective layer, like guard it, protect it at all costs. But what if by guarding it, we're actually being called to pay attention to it? Just as a security guard or soldier is to stand guard of what, is, what it is they're trying to protect, they're supposed to keep watch, pay attention, they're supposed to look around for any threats. They're supposed to listen for anything out of the ordinary. I believe that that's what this verse is getting at. We need to guard our heart by paying attention, by listening to what it's saying. What emotions are we carrying? Wisdom tells us to name it, observe it, deal with it. Have you ever tried to ignore or suppress your emotions? I have, for years. And you stick around people who are bringing you down, perhaps even abusing you, because it would bring more pain, or there would be too much fear of having to name and deal with your emotions and not knowing what may come of it, or being isolated and kicked to the curb of this community or tribe that you were once part of. But here's the reality. If we can't deal with our darkness, we often project and place it on others. And we do this so then we don't have to deal with what's going on. Because suddenly they become the problem. Oh, it's not my problem. It's their problem. And don't get me wrong. They still might be part of the problem. But we need to pay attention to and guard our heart. Because everything we do flows from it. And what I found to be true time and time again is that healing begins with honesty. It may bring disruption, but again, wisdom tells us to name it, observe it, and deal with it. Somewhere along the way, we've been given this message that within our church communities, though, it's not okay to be open. Kind of smile and nod and go along with it. It's not okay to be vulnerable or transparent. But I believe this is what's needed to help create a space of authenticity. And you don't have to answer this next question, but have you ever heard, uh, been to an AA meeting, Alcoholics Anonymous? Oftentimes after people have experienced an AA meeting, 
and then they come back to a church setting. They're like, man, that meeting is what the church needs to be like. There's so much openness and transparency and honesty. But the interesting thing is, I heard from one person who used to be heavily involved in AA, and he admitted to me that it's not the model that makes it work. He admits that there's just as much secrecy and hypocrisy within AA, but what it takes is a group of people willing to be vulnerable with one another. To not just clean it up and make it black and white, did you drink or didn't you drink, but to actually go in to the transparency and the vulnerability of saying, man, I'm struggling with this right now and I'm so badly wanting to drink or celebrating with each other that I've been 11 years sober and things are going great and walking alongside other people who, who are just trying to avoid daily the triggers. In our last church, we were right next to a, a building with, that would host AA, and we would have a lot of people come on Sundays. And there was a bit of that vulnerability and transparency that they offered, that they, they would let you in on, because they had hit rock bottom. And they realized things have to get better. But it's not easy when suddenly your friend or your brother or sister takes their life while you're both going through the AA program. And you're trying desperately not to go back to numb the pain. But it takes a group of people willing to be vulnerable with each other to make this work. What matters is that people are willing to trust others. People are willing to forgive others. People are willing to own their own junk. And this can happen in AA or it can happen in the church. But if this is what we want, then this is what we need to model. This is what we need to embody and embrace. So healing begins with honesty. And then down in Proverbs 14, verse 30, a heart at peace gives life to the body, but envy rots the bones. I know depression is a complicated issue due to chemical and physiological dimensions, and I've been honest with my own struggle with depression. But sometimes we may be down and struggling because there are things going on in our heart that we haven't named, that we haven't expressed. By not listening to our heart and guarding our heart, we're not at peace. There's this interesting Jewish tradition regarding the Ten Commandments. And what's interesting about this is that the first nine commandments can all be externally observed. That I can see if you're uh, worshiping multiple gods, I can see if you've made an idol, if you're stealing, if you've murdered anyone. But the Tenth Commandment, do not covet your neighbor's house, wife, property. It can't be externally observed. It's an internal matter. I can't tell if you're coveting. You can't tell if I'm coveting. So the tradition goes on to say that if you follow the first nine commandments, then the tenth is a reward. Because if you follow the first nine, you won't want anyone else's life. Wanting someone else's life affects us in so many ways. 
If we don't name it, express it, you end up storing it. Wounds, betrayals, pain, suffering. We, we store these things or we place it on others. Therefore, we need to guard our heart. We need to pay attention to it so that we can live from this place of peace, from this place where joy actually is. In Proverbs 15, 15, a miserable heart means a miserable life, but a cheerful heart has a continual feast. A cheerful heart or a beautiful heart has a nonstop party. So let me ask you, what is it that keeps your heart alive? What is it that brings you joy? And actually think about that for a minute. What is it that, that brings you joy? And then let me ask, when was the last time you did it? Because it's shocking how often and for how long we neglect ourselves. And we neglect what brings us most joy. And I, I'm guilty of this. I was talking to Sam earlier about snowboarding. And I was saying, I love snowboarding. But I haven't been snowboarding since we lived in B.C. almost four years ago. If that's something that actually brings me joy and pours into me and gives me life, why haven't I done it? And I know we all have the excuses of kids and responsibility and work and school. But what is it that keeps your heart alive? If we believe that our heart, which pumps blood to our body, which, throws, which flows life to the rest of our body, then why aren't we doing those things that keep our heart alive? If we're saying that it's the control center of who we are, then why are we neglecting that? In fact, some people, when they're kind of awakened to this reality, they sell their homes. We had a, one of our neighbors sell their home so that they could move into a smaller home so that they would have less bills and they could actually do more that would keep their heart alive. Some people quit their jobs. Some people take on new jobs. That was me and my calling into ministry. Some people approach their current jobs totally different. Some people move far away. Some people move into the woods. Some people move into the city. Some people give all their money away, and some people save every last penny for years so that they can go traveling. People do all sorts of things to keep their heart alive. But sometimes if your heart feels slightly dead, like you've settled, you may even need to do something really bold to shock it back to life. And one of the ways to know if you've settled or numb is if you find yourself thinking, is this it? Seriously? Is this as good as it gets? Because you see, that's a question that's coming from your heart. It's not a question coming from your brain or your mind. Your heart's asking, seriously, is this it? What can you do to shock it back to life? Because you see, we've become so enmeshed with the social self that this is what's required of me, this is what's expected, these are the assumptions, this is what the tribe demands. And sometimes we're so wrapped up in what other people have decided is our life. But we need to do something to take back our heart, to guard our heart, to listen to it. It's the ancient wisdom 
of the heart. And it's calling out to you saying that you're far from it. That you're far from life and you need to get it back. And the most beautiful thing is that Jesus offers us life. It's not what's been made of religion, not by drinking the Kool-Aid or trying to fit our colorful selves into these black and white worlds or paradigms. It's through Jesus who initiated reconciliation, renewal, restoration of all things, everyone, everywhere. He gives us life. He's initiated life. He is life. And when, it's, and when we listen to our heart and recognize what Jesus has done and is doing, it's then we can respond and participate in the same reconciling, renewing, and restoring of our world. By listening to our heart and recognizing what Jesus has done, we can present our authentic selves to one another and have peace. By listening to our heart and recognizing what Jesus has done, we can present our... Uh, I just read that. <laughs> By listening to our heart and recognizing what Jesus has done, we can live with a cheerful heart and a continual feast. Because no longer do we understand the world as this black and white thing that we have to survive and get by. But we see the world in all of its beauty and all of its dynamic colors. And we realize that we're part of this story that's so much larger than any one of us. It's as we listen to our heart, we present our authentic selves to each other and we realize we're not alone. No matter what you're facing, we realize that we're all broken, but our story doesn't end there. It's merely just beginning. The Jesus movement is all about rediscovering our story. It's a party, it's a banquet, it's a feast, and everyone's welcome. It's actually Jesus who takes us beyond religion. He brings us to this place of what it means to be human. Jesus announces that we're loved. So my prayer is that we drop the mask of perfection and that we journey together toward authenticity and toward Jesus.